You're listening now to The Green Majority. This is our special 500th episode, of which I've been on about 420 of them. (laughs) This is your host, Aaron Kaster. Unfortunately, I was so ill this week that I could not make it in, uh, so ill that I was in the hospital, unfortunately, so I was uh, not in the show. However, my co-host did an excellent job, and and I'm almost glad I wasn't there because I would have ruined what a good job they did. So you're in for a heck of a show, a heck of a show. Just uh, buckle your seatbelts, stay tuned, and of course, just a quick reminder that if you can, are willing and able to help us out, you can become a member of the Green Majority for as little as a dollar a month at uh, greenmajority.ca and click on the How You Can Help button, or go to patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash green majority enjoy the show Stephen Hostetter, and you are listening to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5, or across the country on one of our radio, wonderful radio syndicates, or on the podcast, or through rebel.ca. Uh, as you may have noticed, this is not Darren Kaster's voice. Uh, in a bit of ridiculous irony, uh, our usual host, Darren Kaster, is off sick uh, today. Uh, as I imagine, as, as I'm sure some longtime listeners of the show know, it would take nearly a herd of elephants to keep him from doing the show. Uh, and I promise you, it was nearly that. Uh, or if you want the truth for some reason. Uh, he's had an ongoing ongoing issue that's flared up. Uh, unfortunately, required him to admit to the hospital. He's going to be fine, uh, and he's sent me this message to read to you. Uh, but I was, but he's not allowed to leave the hospital until they are done. Despite his many, and once again speaking for Stefan this time, I'm sure lengthy protests. Uh, so Darren, we'll see you next week, uh, and and on with the show. And we've got a great show this morning. Actually, we've got in studio we have the reigning champion of Green Majority guests, Tim Nash. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, and co-hosts Brenna Owen and also M.A. Ma. Great to be here on this special episode. I guess you're going to tell us why, Stefan. Uh, yes. It, am, I, am, I, am I? That seems to make so much sense, M.A. Uh, this is the 500th episode, uh, which is, I guess is what's adds. I think Darren's been on about 400 of them. Uh, I've been on about 100, so it seems almost it seems so unreasonable that uh, that he cannot make this episode. Which is, but to do please tweet your love at him. Maybe not a turtle because that's my thing, but maybe something else that's more huggable. Uh, tweet all the at the Green Majority, uh, all the huggable things, so he can he can get well soon. Uh, but let's take a pause for a second. I, I speak very quickly, and I'll try to slow down. But just for three seconds, uh, they say there's, there's nothing worse than dead air on the radio. Uh, but let's try it just for three seconds. Take care of yourselves, everyone. Uh, it's a unique honor to be sitting here and hosting the 500th episode of the show, and with that honor, I feel comes with a little responsibility. I promise this is be- in just over one minute, we'll swing back to the fun, banter-filled broadcast you've come to expect, uh, but I'm going to take this one minute for earnestness. Uh, first, thank you. Thank you, listeners, because without you, we're just four people talking in a fancy room. Uh, you make this show matter. And secondly... To reiterate myself, take care of yourselves. Fighting for a better world is difficult and a dangerous task. So be kind to yourself. Give yourself a day off. Take in the sun. Howl at the moon. Laugh like you've never laughed before. Uh, Let's give ourselves a break. Drop the dogma. 
and strip ourselves from the stresses we so often clothe ourselves in. We'll come back to this at the end of the show, but w- but w- let's wake up in the but to wake up in the sustainable world we envision will take a long, hard road. So while we're on it, let's give ourselves a break uh, and try to have a little fun once in a while because you deserve it. Uh, Ernest, break over. Let's move on to the interview. Tim Nash, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me in the studio. Uh, so you're here with something called the Green Transition Scorecard. You've come year no. after year with this sort of with this thing, and it's all about green trends. But can you just sort of give us our listeners, in case they're new, an explanation of uh, of what it really is? Uh, sure. So this is a project that uh, I've been doing since 2009 is when we did the first report. Uh, I work with a mentor of mine named Hazel Henderson. She's based down in. Florida. For those of you unfamiliar with Hazel's work, she is definitely worth the Wikipedia search. Uh, she's been at this for a long time. She wrote a book in 1981 called The Politics of the Solar Age about the need to transition away from the fossil fuel economy towards the clean, green solar economy. <laughs> so just to put that into perspective, I was born in 1982. Ah. So she has literally been at this longer than I have been alive. <laughs> And um, uh, she was uh, an advisor on my master's uh, thesis. And after that project, we were sort of brainstorming some different ways that we could collaborate. And one report came up showing, remember, this is back in 2009, so we're still in the midst of the recession at this point, and showing that in order to avert the worst-case climate catastrophes, we need roughly $10 trillion of private investments in the global green economy by 2020. Now, at that time, that seemed absurd and unreasonable and unrealistic. And how on earth are we ever going to possibly do that? And we decided, well, why don't we start counting and see how we're doing towards that trend? And as I started to aggregate all the different numbers that are out there, looking at sectors like renewable energy, energy efficiency, uh, uh, water infrastructure, research and development into green technologies, all of a sudden I found myself counting more than a trillion dollars. And our first report in, uh, I think it was launched in 2009 or 2010, was $1.2 trillion. Since then, I've been updating it year by year, every single year. Uh, I'm happy to report the latest figure is $7.1 trillion of private money. We've excluded government funding because it's always, we always get this knock, well, oh, the green economy wouldn't exist without government subsidies. And of course, we can point to the fossil fuel industry and say the (laughs) same thing. But because we knew that argument was coming, we explicitly uh, uh, divided out and separated out government money. So 7.1 trillion of private money globally into green sectors. Uh, This puts us on track to hit 10 trillion by 2020. This means that from an economic transition perspective, uh, it's happening. Mm -hmm. The the green economy is not something that's happening in the future. It's not some sort of idealistic uh, 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 future uh, tense situation. This is happening right now uh, to the tune of trillions of dollars. And really, for me, it's a good news story. I mean, you know, you talked about taking care of ourselves, and a big part of that is psychologically. There are a lot of really bad stories on the environment that come out. I feel like almost every day, my uh, my newsfeed is just full of these some pretty nasty things. And uh, and so, what we wanted to do was really celebrate the growing green economy. And by aggregating these numbers and lumping it all into this one giant figure, trying to create a bit of a bandwagon for people to jump on. And from my perspective, uh, this green transition is inevitable. 
It's not a question, a question of if it happens, but when it happens. And what I want to do is show people that private investors, the big money is getting in on this and that really from an investment standpoint, uh, you better get in on it too. Otherwise, the train's going to leave. Amazing. Uh, so I have a, I'm a bit of a data head myself. And so whenever I look at reports like this, there's always like I always have a favorite number. You know, there's like one right. number that I look at that I'm like, this is the number, like, this is the thing that I'm excited about most. Or this is, mm. and it's often not necessarily the biggest number sometimes. It's sometimes right. it's a, a number that you don't expect. I like big numbers though. All right. What's the, like, what's, well, so what's it's your not favorite the number? Big, it's not the biggest number, but you know, one thing that really jumped out at me and you know, I, I hear so much here in Canada, I think, you know, sadly we're a little bit behind the times. And one of the arguments that I always get, that I always see uh, from some of sort of the, the online trolls that are always, you know, claiming that, that the green economy is a scam. So they're saying, well, we're not going to do anything unless China and India move, mm-hmm. right? Well, you know, one of the really interesting things to come out of the report this year is that India is investing more than $100 billion specifically into solar over the next five to ten years. Wow. So that means that India – uh, under their Prime Minister Modi is essentially leapfrogging a lot of our sort of dirty fossil fuel infrastructure. And just like certain countries have leapfrogged our telephone infrastructure, uh, so a lot of countries, instead of building telephone lines everywhere, are just building cell phone towers, right? Because that is the wave of the future. In the same way, they are bypassing our uh, sort of dirty fossil fuel infra- energy infrastructure and are simply going solar and are placing a huge bet on it. Um, that that to me gives confidence. Uh, meanwhile, we can talk about China and how they're going to do cap and trade as well and how they are actually the biggest investor in renewable energy. Uh, but for anyone that's kind of a naysayer that's pointing, oh, we shouldn't move until these under- other countries move. Well, guess what? <laughs> they're moving. And if we don't move, we're going to get left in the dust. Amazing. Yeah, we also had, I think, briefly mentioned the announcement that came out of Saudi Arabia, which I believe was at the totally. $2 trillion mark. So how is that going to impact your numbers next yeah, year? Yeah, well, looking forward to see what they do with that one. So, you know, really, really fascinating to see. Uh, I believe it's the world's largest oil producer. If they're not the largest. They might be the second largest. Uh, actually trying to diversify. And so, you know, one of the big... Uh, uh, comments we always have about sort of the Alberta economy and what's happening here in Canada is this need to diversify, how that is the smart economic strategy, um, and that really we're seeing it from Saudi Arabia. So they are going to privatize part of Aramco. I think it's only a percentage of that that's going to be in this IPO. They're going to raise $2 trillion. They've said explicitly that their goal is to take that $2 trillion and diversify it. Um, I, I'm excited to see what allocation they do give to green energy in that. I haven't heard any sort of explicit numbers, so that's not included in here. But for me, it's just it's uh, you know one of the world's biggest oil players recognizing that they are way too dependent on oil revenues, mm-hmm. saying that no, we're going to take this money, we're going to sell it now while investors are still willing to buy it. We're going to take that cash. We're going to spread it around. We're going to diversify it. We're going to get some exposure to uh, green sectors. And in doing so, really sort of ensure their economic future. Cool. Uh, so, well, speaking of a country too dependent on oil on its oil economy, Canada, um, there's a report coming out uh, just from the budget uh, – from the Canadian – Canada's parliamentary budget office uh, about, about a carbon price and exactly how it would impact uh, Canadian uh, – the Canadian economy. 
Uh, and what's interesting is your actual title of this report is called Ending Externalities. And yeah. obviously a carbon price is a large part of ending externalities. Absolutely. Uh, and so what, how does your report sort of tie into the, the idea of ending externalities yeah. and the carbon pricing in general? Yeah, I mean, so, uh, yeah, so the, the reason we went with this notion of ending externalities is understanding that right now uh, a lot of polluting industries are getting a free ride. So as it stands right now, our atmosphere is uh, basically a dump where people can dump pollution for free. Um, this is becoming a problem. Surprise, surprise, when you allow people to do something for free, you know, they end up going overboard with it. So by uh, putting a price on carbon, we are ending that as an externality. We are bringing this carbon pollution now into the profit-maximizing equation. We are assigning a tangible, real economic cost to carbon emissions, um, which is absolutely crucial. Um, now, you know, the typical argument has been, oh, no, we can't put a price on carbon. It's going to ruin our economy. Well, this report, I believe, is saying that uh, a price on carbon is projected to do, at worst, a 1% to 3% hit to GDP. Mm -hmm. You contrast that to reports that show that if we do nothing on climate change, uh, it could have an impact of 15 to 25% of GDP. Talk about a cost-benefit analysis there. <laughs> Uh, you know, everyone who uh, – anytime people – you know, I do come up against uh, opposition and people that, that think this is a bad idea, I always say, well, if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, if climate change is a scam, if all these scientists are wrong and we're making this up and it is a giant scam put forward by David Suzuki and Al Gore, <laughs> then, um, you know, really what we're going to do is we're going to lose 1% to 3% of GDP. But what if you're wrong? Right. What if you're wrong and climate change is real and that we are going to see extreme weather events? Now, all of a sudden, if you're wrong, we're looking at a much, much bigger hit to GDP from a, a, a risk mitigation standpoint. And here in Canada, we're supposed to be very risk adverse, right. right? We're supposed to be, we're the low risk banking sector globally. You know, we're trying to, to lower our risk whenever possible. Um, and yet, uh, if we don't act on climate change, we're exposing ourselves to this huge risk. So for me, what this does is, is this study confirms uh, the, the Stern report, which came out, I think it was 2011, um, where, you know, it looked at sort of the global economy. This one is much more focused on the Canadian economy. Again, what it shows us is that by acting on climate change, there is going to be a negative impact on the economy. Um, but it's not as nearly as big as some people would make it out to be. The sky will not fall. Um, and in fact, when you look at the opportunities involved, right, there's actually the opportunity to be able to recoup because this is looking at the downside. Mm -hmm. What it fails to capture is the potential upside. So if we can develop uh, renewable energy technologies, if we can be a leader in this new green economy, uh, this is the economy of the future, right? We recognize it now by sort of, uh, um, you know, by denying it, by saying, no, we don't want to be doing this. This is like when the internet came out and say, no, 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 the internet's going to destroy our economy. We shouldn't have the internet. <laughs> let's, let's stop the internet. Like it's, it's that same It's killing logic. jobs, the internet. The, it, I mean, but that's <laughs> welcome to the economy. It's a living, breathing organism. And from my standpoint, our leader should be getting us ahead of that curve, ahead of that evolution, especially with global trade. We need to be in a situation where, where we are exporting these technologies rather than importing them. Yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted to follow up on a point you made, Tim, which I think really helps to set some of these figures that we see coming out of reports like this in context. Now, I found this report uh, quite pragmatic. It, it takes our 
current, uh, what I would say is a suboptimal unscientific greenhouse gas emissions reduction target, which is 30% by 2030 on 2005 <clears throat> levels. But it's good because it takes that framework and it says, okay, here are the outcomes. It uses measures um, mm-hmm. that we see a lot, but maybe people don't really understand how to set those in context. Right. So I like the fact that you point out, well, it says that we might see a reduction in GDP by 1% to 3%, but the cost of inaction could Correct. be far greater. And the report obviously doesn't cover that because it's outside the scope and that's yep. that's understandable. Yep. The other thing it highlights is that there's a projection around lowering uh, average income by $1,900 by 2030. Yep. And I just wanted to make a remark on that because some people might say, well, that's not a good uh, communications pitch for the, the climate movement. But one, um, the $1,900 might mean something different in 2030, um, but it's it uses the figure average income. So right. Uh, maybe you can comment a little bit about what that does and doesn't speak to in terms of which segments of the population it might impact and also um, how it's, it may not speak to broader measures around things like you talk about in your report, like life systems, for right. example. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, the fallacies of our current economic system is this uh, prioritization of uh, uh, purely economic figures. So this obsession that we have with GDP this notion that living standards is simply tied to our income. And what it misses out on are all the other aspects of life that are just as important, if not more important, than income and economic activity. Um, so, you know, it always there, – there's a study I always come back to that uh, uh, they, they looked at, at happiness levels – what they found is that someone making $60,000 but living in a neighborhood where their neighbors make $50,000 is actually substantially happier with their life and income than someone who makes $100,000 but lives in a neighborhood where their neighbors make $120,000. So when it comes to these income levels, it's really easy to look at these absolute numbers and say, oh, no, you know, we're going to have more money. But really it comes down to that relative context. Um, as well, what it doesn't account for are very simply things like uh, health issues, right? When the the fact that we got rid of coal in Ontario and we've dramatically reduced uh, levels of asthma and respiratory illness in Ontario, not captured by this figure. Uh, the notion of protecting ecosystems and the, be able, the ability to access, uh, you know, the amazing wilderness that we have here in Canada, but also around the world, uh, preserving that, not captured in here. So there are all of these different factors that by really this narrow perspective on GDP and on income is absolutely missing the bigger picture. Uh, So one measure that I love, uh, I always point towards is something called the Canadian Index for Well-Being and looking at this broader concept of well-being. And certainly living standards is a part of well-being. It's captured in that index. Um, So that aspect of it would decline. But when you consider the fact that uh, uh, in this scenario, we would likely be healthier, we would likely have uh, more access to nature, um, potentially we would actually feel better about our jobs, (laughs) right? And there's this whole notion we talk about the levels of unemployment and the quantity of jobs, but rarely do we talk about the quality of those jobs and how much satisfaction do people get from their employment. 
But if we're creating higher quality jobs uh, that are going to be protecting our environment, that are going to be uh, uh, keeping us healthy, then for me, that's uh, th- those are the aspects that are missing from this. Uh, these reports tend to only focus on the financial capital, on the uh, manufactured capital. They absolutely miss the human capital, social capital, and natural capital aspects of our economy. And even even if we're looking at this quite narrowly, um, am I right in assuming that this really doesn't speak to income distribution? So, for example, right. if we're shifting from an economy um, where certain h- high-income folks were making a lot out of resource extraction right. uh, type activities and say their their income levels came down significantly, and they that would affect the average, would it not? Yeah, so absolutely. this, I guess, would not speak to income distribution and 100%. really how it might impact truly the average Canadian. A hundred percent. And, you know, one thing I always point out, but it's just – it's like fun with math. But when they talk about averages, averages for me are kind of useless. In this scenario, I'd I'd be much more interested in the mean impact um, and sort of, you know, looking at that. Um, sort of uh, understanding sort of the mean versus the median and sort of how those impacts are going to play out that uh, really when we talk about like the average Canadian, well, if someone, you know, if someone on the on the 1% is if the Irving family is taking a huge hit, you know, that's not going to have necessarily a huge impact on my life. Yeah. Uh, so there, I want to get to one last question before we go to the music break. Uh, and it's become, I want, mainly the reason I want to ask this question is because it's, it sort of seemed a little out of place, actually, in, in your article, or in, in your report. Yeah. Uh, in part, and I want to, I sort of want to get explanation why. So I was at, so I went to the Globe, uh, sustainability conference this year, and I attended a, a, one of the talks it was entirely about increasing access to financial institutions. Okay. Uh, in through FinTech, which I'm pretty yeah. sure stands for financial tech. Financial you can let me know. technology. Financial technology. Great. You got um, and it's, it seems that this is exactly what financial technology is all about, increasing access uh, to, to you know, financial institutions, banking, for example. Um, and what's interesting is both at – so I saw it once at, at, at a sustainability conference globe and then again in your report. And uh, I'm trying to understand exactly yeah. what about this is important in environmental sure. context. Totally. So fintech is a fascinating piece and we do our best to get ahead of these trends. So we've got things like fintech in here, which is sort of a new category. So when it comes to these new financial technologies, essentially what we're doing is we are cutting out the financial intermediaries. So one of the best examples that we included in here for the first time is peer-to-peer lending. We included this in our life systems category. Humans are part of life. This is a way for humans to fund other humans. Right. If you've ever been in a situation where you want to start a business or you need some money for for something, you know, access to capital can be really tricky. You know, oftentimes you're going to one major financial institution like a bank. You're going to one lender that now like you are literally beholden to that institution. You know, the idea of a bond actually comes from the word bondage. (laughs) Right. That's the, you know, stocks and bonds. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we when we talk about that, it's there's absolutely a power dynamic in place there. Now, all of a sudden, through this new financial technology, we're talking about things like crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, uh, getting that loan from a number of different people. Now, I still have a financial obligation to pay those people back. But all of a sudden, now what I'm doing is instead of having to go through a bank or even going to one of those cash money, you know, quick cash places where the interest rates are exorbitant, now all of a sudden, because I'm going to other humans, oftentimes I'm able to get a lower cost of capital. It's going to make it more affordable for me to service my debt. As well, one of the big, big issues in fintech right now is this idea of remittances, which is when um, people who have family overseas, oftentimes they'll be here working in Canada, earning Canadian dollars, and then sending that money home. 
right now, the fees they pay to send that money home are stupid. They're, they're getting absolutely destroyed both in terms of the transaction fees and in terms of the currency exchanges mm. because they always kind of give you a poor rate because they know you have to. But now all of a sudden through fintech, if I can directly send money to my family overseas with a proper exchange rate paying a much lower rate because this new fintech company has come in and disrupted that, well, that means that me as humans, my family, we keep more of our money. So it's a really interesting trend to start to see. And, you know, my mentor, Hazel, she, uh, uh, she's been fantastic. But she talks a lot about sort of the global ca- casino and how corrupt the financial markets and the financial system is. This idea of financial technology is allowing us to take back some of that power through things like crowdfunding, uh, equity-based crowdfunding, which is now for the first time legal in Canada. Um, things like uh, uh, we'll be able to crowdfund renewable energy projects. We're going to be able to uh, maybe people who have the opportunity to go to school but can't afford it can now all of a sudden go to their crowd, use their social capital, leverage that to be able to get uh, um, money but at a much cheaper rate rather than paying through their teeth to the big banks. Amazing. Uh, so, uh, Tim, I'm going to give you one half second to sort of where can people find this report uh, yep. and uh, pitch for yourself. Sure. So uh, it's Green Transition Scoreboard com is where you can see this year's report and all of our past year's reports as well if you want to go back in time. Um, they can find me, uh, at the Sustainable Economist, so sustainableeconomist.com. My Twitter handle is Time Nash, T-I-M-E-N-A-S-H. <laughs> and um, yeah, really curious to hear from people about what they think about this report, really trying to inject some good news uh, here on Earth Day. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tim. Uh, you're going to stick around for the rest of the show if yep. you can. Amazing. Fantastic. Uh, and now we'll go to Alex for our first music break. Live on CIUT on this beautiful Earth Day, April 22nd. And we're just going to kick off this next section um, by noting something that's happening in New York City today. So international leaders um, from approximately 160 to 170 countries are currently in the process of signing the International Climate Treaty. That was a result of COP21 in Paris. If they've stayed on schedule, I believe our prime minister will have just have signed a little bit, a little while ago. And basically the significance of this is that for this many countries to sign, um, it's looking very likely that the agreement will kick in earlier than anticipated. Uh, it was set for 2020, but now with enough countries signing, it may be sooner. They'll have to be um, they'll have to be sort of legislate legislative actions in all the different countries to to ground this in their domestic law. But basically, what's required is that 55 countries with 55 percent of global emissions sign this agreement. So while that happens with a lot of of fanfare, I can imagine, you know, we're going to talk about some of the other things that are happening around the globe in terms of more grassroots-oriented movements um, that are doing a lot of work to usher in the, the kind of transition we've been speaking about on the show. Yeah, and uh, Brenna, you're going to throw to that one. Yeah, I mean, um, I wasn't able to go to the closing rally of the INAC occupation yesterday, but I, I wanted to point out that the occupation is still happening in Winnipeg um, and in a few other places. Uh, there's been occupations in Vancouver, Kenora, um, and people pointing to the fact that it feels like there's high energy right now around making linkages between climate and sovereignty of indigenous peoples. Um, 
you know, I, I wanted to take a moment actually just to talk about how the current government talks about youth, whether it be like youth in Attawapiskat or a generalized um, idea of youth that they appear to have. Plato's ideal of youth. Yeah. Um, you know, like when the Canadian youth delegation was at COP21 in Paris, it was very much like, yeah, let's pose for a photo, photo op, photo op. Um, we ended up doing an action called Youth Need to Be Heard, Not Just Seen. Um, I watched the Facebook Live um uh, with Catherine McKenna yesterday. It was like her first Facebook Live at Algonquin College. And, you know, just I think yesterday, Prime Minister Trudeau announced um, that he's going to convene a Youth Council of Canadians. I, and I'm not sure whether it's the same thing as the um, Youth Prime Minister's Advisory Council That's was one of his election platforms. But our Prime Minister is also the Minister of Youth. Mm. Um so he kind of like had a lot of clout getting elected, purports to really care what youth have to say. But I swear, if I have to hear Catherine McKenna say one more time, like we brought the youth to Paris or youth, send us your solutions. Like we're over here waving our hands saying these are our solutions already, like right now. So there's now this website called, um, I, I think it's called Let's Talk. I'm just, yeah, Let's Talk Climate Action.ca, which is a new government website all about um, how the science is clear. There's a video. You've got submit your ideas, how and where to reduce emissions. You know, it's um, not something we would have seen under the Harper government where meteorolo meteorologists were banned from saying the words climate change. But, um, we also have Justin Trudeau at the UN answering to why we are still funding tar sands with, you know, we're still going to continue pushing through with pipelines. So it's super tokenizing for young people, I think, right now um, with the the government, especially when young people in Attawapiskat are submitting demands for like a, a skate park and a rec center and things that we consider to be very accessible to us here in southern urban Canada and there was no real dialogue between Trudeau and Attawapiskat youth that we know of and that was one of the things that they had asked for mm -hmm. um, and uh, as Brennan I'm just going to ask you for our international listeners yeah. maybe just explain a little bit about INAC and the occupation and sort of what the main how that came about and sort of what are the main aims around that yeah action. so INAC is Indian and Northern Affairs Canada and um a couple of days after there were 11 attempted suicides in a remote community called Attawapiskat, um, a group of mostly Indigenous folks, um, members of uh, Black Lives Matter Toronto and also allies, occupied, began an occupation of the office of INAC in Toronto, Ontario. Um, it lasted over a week. Um, a week, maybe nine days. I think it was nine days. And the concluding rally was yesterday. I was able to spend a little bit of time there, but there were people there 24 hours a day, mm -hmm. um, holding it down, performing ceremony. You know, the firefighters, firefighters were called in when, um, a smudge bowl was being passed around because ceremony is apparently a risk, you know, bathroom access was, um, was prohibited and then later limited, which is, you know, in direct contravention of the right to peacefully gather and assemble our constitutional rights. Um, so what you see here is, you know, dialogue on one side of saying we're listening to youth in Attawapiskat and then like a crackdown on the other side of people who are peacefully occupying a space. 
about, as Christy Belcourt tweeted, children. This mm-hmm. is about children. Mm-hmm. It's not about politics. It's about the health of children. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it, 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 it sort of speaks to this uh, this ongoing connection between between these different issues. Uh, and and before we sort of jump into that, because I think that's one where we want to go to, so this, this, this fascinating connections that exist between those issues. Uh, uh, Ma, we want to make sure we definitely do not forget to mention uh, the LNG uh, fight that's ongoing. So I want to throw you yeah, that. Yeah, sure. So this is a story we've been following for some time, and it relates to the Petronas, which is a Malaysian company liquefied natural gas LNG facility. Um, on that's that's planned for Leilu Island in BC. Now, one of the major challenges around this facility in terms of its impact on the environment is that um, there's a river in this area which is sa- uh, which is Canada's second largest salmon spawning site, um, and the First Nations in that area have raised some concern, um, particularly the Lax Quilam uh, people. They had a community vote on whether to accept uh, a revenue payout from Patronus to the, the tune of $1 billion last year. They rejected that. They felt that the impacts of this project would be too detrimental to the salmon, which are part of their traditional way of life. They actually have a processing plant that employs people there, and they, they wanted to interact uh, in a more sustainable way um, with the salmon as a natural resource. The other, the other thing they've been raising is that they believe that when this facility is built, it will be an extremely high-emitting facility and really contribute to climate change. So there's been a bit of um, conflict around this. Um, Leaders, First Nations leaders from this community and the surrounding area have gone to Ottawa this past week. They are the hereditary leaders. Apparently the mayor of the area... um, issued a conditional letter of support for this, so there's been some conflict around that. BC Premier Christy Clark has been announcing to everybody that First Nations are all on board with this, and that is clearly not the case. So we've talked a little bit about there have been scientific studies which actually back the position of the leaders who have come out against this and community members who have come out against this. So this is a story that we want to continue to follow. Catherine McKenna will actually make a decision in the next few months as to whether this project goes ahead. So we need to follow this quite closely and make sure that it doesn't fall off the radar. Interestingly, I mean, I would also say that Catherine McKenna's decision is not necessarily indicative of whether it will actually go ahead because of grassroots resistance. Um, But, um, you know, when I was watching the Facebook Live uh, video the other day, people were commenting a lot about LNG, like in the comment sections, commenting on the video, LNG is the future, LNG is green. And okay, so not only does LNG... I don't know if we've anyone has here has seen fractured land. Like it's a crazy amount of infrastructure that First Nations are being like inundated with um, quote unquote free prior and informed consent. They can't even people can't even keep up with paperwork that that they're being inundated. And like that, the other thing is that one billion dollars is a much more generous resource revenue sharing agreement than a lot of First Nations are seeing. Um, so I think it's it's like indicative of the fact that these are land defenders. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for instance, Attawapiskat, I had mentioned, I, I forgot to mention like DeBoers, the diamond com- diamond mine company, like Attawapiskat has seen hardly any money from, from that extractive industry. Yeah. Uh, so LNG, just so uh, we define our terms as liquid, yeah. as liquefied nat- nat- natural gas. Uh, so it's, 
natural gas is seen consistently, uh, or argued at least from from many par- par- many sort of centrists as the solution to let us keep burning fossil fuels while not moving entirely to renewables. Um, and so it's an like ongoing interesting. That's an interesting sort of argument that we can have not right now. Um, so, but we have about three minutes before we want to go to the last segment. The last segment is going to be a little different. We're actually going to bring in uh, two of our other sort of uh, bonus show hosts as well, uh, and maybe even get Alex to uh, to chime in as well. And the whole last section is going to be devoted to what do we want to be talking about in our 1,000th episode. Uh, so a little over nine and a half years from now, uh, we'll have our 1,000th episode. Hopefully, it would somehow work out land on Earth Day again. I still don't know how it happened the first time, so I'm going to pretend it'll happen again. Um, and, and we'll see that. So that's the last part of the show. Uh, but before we get to that, I was briefly want to mention this sort of this interesting uh, and I'll hopefully come back to the interesting coalition building that's existing uh, that exists. So it's there's three different w- sort of ones that are sort of entering the mainstream conversation. The first, of course, is uh, 350.org's people. Uh, the, the people's movement, uh, or the new, it's, it's not exactly called the people's movement. People's plan. People's I think. plan. I think yeah. is what they're calling. It, yeah, uh, it's the coalition between uh, unions and it's, it's started from the Jobs, Justice, and Climate March, uh, but it's a coalition between unions and indigenous, indigenous populations and climate folks, all working together to sort of to see this to see all the problems you're discussing the show as one problem that we all can come together and solve. You know, people can get uh, we people can have good jobs uh, and and respect land rights. Uh, and stop climate change, all working together. Uh, the second one is one that's sort of coming up a more, little more recently, which is this iron and earth, uh, which is a, a com- which is a work to actually retrain oil sands workers uh, into renewable energy op- opportunities. Uh, this especially get come out. It's, it's been growing ever since. Uh, so the price of oil has has collapsed, uh, and so these we find a lot of workers who are very skilled laborers, skilled people, but you know no longer can work in the oil industry. And so this is a retraining them to work within the renewable energy sector. And the third is one that actually Emma just sent me this morning, which is what uh, sort of got this conversation going. Uh, and Emma, you want to talk to briefly about that? Sure. This is an article, I think, that's making the rounds, and rightly so. It's The title of the article is called A Radical Alliance of Black and Green Could Save the World. And then the, the subline there is, but first the two movements have to rediscover their shared roots in a fundamental critique of an economy and a society that value things more than lives. So just in a nutshell, and I really do recommend that people read the article, and we can make it available uh, to our website, greenmajority.ca. Um, but really, at its essence... Um, it looks at the roots of these two movements, and it looks at how the environment movement actually took a lot of learning from the black civil rights movement. And and it, it comments um, on some of the historical thoughts that leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King had around the economy and the oppression of certain peoples and the political systems. And, you know, there's one quite famous quote which talks about King really questioning what the black movement is integrating into. Are we integrating into a burning house? And it, it talks about you know, that the the civil rights movement was really about valuing human life and, and equality. And then the environmental movement has not dissimilar values, but looking at, you know, valuing the natural world and looking at people's impact um, on that world. And, and the argument is that these things are not mutually exclusive, that if people are predisposed to, to disrespect other human beings, they will probably also disrespect the, the natural world and vice versa. So looking at both the historical roots and the thought that inform these movements, um, the argument, I guess, is that we are seeing now more of a convergence so of different movements. So we're looking at the environmental movement, realizing the important role, leadership role that indigenous people 
people play. We've talked a little bit about our Canadian situation here where Black Lives Matter is joining an Indigenous movement and, and providing support. So we're seeing sort of a connecting of the dots. And I think that's the important thing to acknowledge. Yeah. Um, and so and so look at, for future episodes to really actually dive into this. Cause I think this, this coalition building is fascinating and, and also really how we win. Um, so before we go to the next music break, I want to mention that uh, Darren has let me know that if you want to hear his voice, because you because you, you tune in the show just to hear his voice, he will be on the bonus show with some special Earth Day thoughts. Uh, so that will probably may not be up today, but might be up over this weekend. But uh, if you want, uh, he's going to tune in. Go to readmajority.ca to download the podcast. You can hear you can hear Darren's wonderful voice. Uh, and with that, if you're just tuning in, we're on CAUT 89.5. We're come back with, uh, with Tim, with Brenna, with M.A., also with Sabina and Deirdre, and hopefully we can convince Alex to let us know what we all want to be talking about in episode 1000 uh, on CIUT 89.5. Alex, what do you listen to? And welcome back to the Green Majority on 89.5, or across the universe on our wonderful radio syndicates. Uh, stole Ken Stowers' radio show title name there. Sorry, Ken. Um, and, uh, but so what we do in this last section of the show is really look at... Uh, you know, we want to forward casting. You know, I, I, I'd be I'd be blown away if when they started this show they'd think it'd make it to 500 episodes. Uh, so I'm going to very optimistically say we'll make it to a thousand. Uh, and so at this point, you know, we're, we're we're all no longer youth. So the Justin Trudeau, he, as he as he continues his 10 year reign, I'm sure uh, will no longer be speaking for us. Not that he does now. Um, but uh, but to uh, to Tim Nash first, Tim, uh, you're so as the reigning champ, you are still the reigning champ in hypothetical 1,000th episode. Uh, but what are you talking about? Uh, so for the thousandth episode, uh, it's it's actually a bit of a tricky situation because we are now in the midst of a green bubble. Mm. So valuation of green companies has gone so high that everyone now is so worried that they are terribly overvalued and that uh, people who missed out on it are, are trying to catch up very quickly. The largest companies in the world are uh, quickly racing to become B corporations. Uh, because we've closed all the tax loopholes uh, in all these tax havens everywhere. And so the only way for them to actually get a tax advantage is to become a B Corporation and report on their social and environmental metrics, which they are quickly trying to get better. All right. Amazing. Uh, Brenna. I definitely don't want to be talking about Earth Day. Nice. Um, <laughs> okay, so an article has been shared around my Facebook a little bit today um, from The Nation. Um titled let this earth day be the last f earth day um and i'm actually just going to read a little bit of it because i it pretty much sums up my thoughts um and the dishonesty and the deception stop lying to yourselves ourselves and to our children um the planet you know stop lying that the planet can be saved that more by a more or less business as usual approach um let go of the pretense that quote-unquote environmentalism as we know it which is virtuous green consumerism affluent low carbon localism head in the sand conservative uh conservation conservationism or something yeah um Feel good greenwash capitalism, you know all of these things. Like I, I definitely don't want to be talking about one day a year where we like turn our lights off. Um, we need to radically shift our consumption patterns, the way that we, we relate to each other and to other other different groups of people. Well, the Earth gets twenty five hours a day. It's Earth Day and then Earth Hour, and right. then the rest okay, is all yes. everything else. Twenty five <laughs> hours. Um, thank you, uh, Deirdre. Uh, so uh, I know you haven't actually been introduced on the on on the radio show itself, uh, but Deirdre's one of has been on on the bonus show and be, will be joining us uh, more and more throughout the next little while. Uh, so, what do you want to be talking about on the thousandth <laughs> episode of the Green Majority? 
that's that's a really exciting topic because I mean in ten years hopefully I agree with Brenna Brenna hopefully we won't be talking about Earth Day like it's a single day to celebrate how much we've done for the planet um, I think <laughs> you're I welcome think planet the dem- <laughs> yeah you're welcome <laughs> um, I think the demographics changing and um, it's changing rapidly with technology with the way we educate people and I think it'd be cool to look back at at this episode and be like, man, how messed up was society back then? Like, how how messed up is it that we had to talk about these things and this infrastructure? And I just think it'd be cool to look back on even 20, 2015, 2016 and, and this, the major changes that are happening right now and, and look at how it's, how it's changed at that point. Amazing. Deirdre makes a compelling case for why the Green Majority's Thousands episode shouldn't exist at all. Uh, Sabina, also, uh, you've, you've been a little bit in and out of these of last week's show, so I think you've been heard by listeners. But Sabina, what do you want to be talking about in the Thousands episode? I really hope that it's not the opposite of what Deirdre says when you look back <laughs> and you think, oh, those are the great green times. That is the complete opposite of what I wish. What I really and truly wish is that we move towards, I, I hope that in 10 years, we can close down the last coal power plant and we can completely, hopefully, shift towards renewable energies. And I really, like, this is the tech nerd in me. I really hope that we see some really, really cool, cool, like, net zero carbon kind of materials that we're building with, you know, cement completely having gone towards, you know, net zero carbon and moving to moving science in, in a way that we look at how our impact on earth is doing those life cycle assessments from cradle to cradle, not cradle to grave, and just completely seeing how we can reuse our, our plastics and anything that we do today to create new materials. Amazing. Uh, Alex, uh, so you are ready. You're primed up. You're not going net yet. Don't worry. But it's slow to make sure you had your headset on. Uh, M.A., what, what do you want me talking about? I just like the fact that Savina was like, I'm going to talk about tangible results. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nail that down, Savina. <laughs> So I would love to be talking about what to do in terms of next step with this wonderful broad-based movement that we've built that has come together around our shared humanity and it has continued to grapple over several years around um, how we further our successes around integrating sustainability, prosperity, and equality in the world. I would like us to really be along our journey around examining and transforming our social, political, and economic systems and really look in a way that is going to serve future generations, you know, adopting the First Nations saying around thinking seven generations ahead. If that kind of philosophy could be fully integrated into all of our societies, I will be very happy with the progress we've made. Amazing. Uh, so, Alex, so outside of the idea that the Hunt Thousands episode will be at a concert venue uh, the size of you know the size of the ACC, which you and your band will be headlining, uh, <laughs> what do you want to see in the Thousands show? Well, what I was going to say is uh, hopefully we'll be broadcasting to a couple million people in Canada, and our listeners will actually be the green majority ah. uh, of people. Um, but I. I like cynically think that we'll still be cleaning up a, a lot of messes at that point. Even if even if uh, the green movement has sort of won the war, we'll still be we'll still be cleaning up the archaic systems. And 
calling to to government to sort of catch up to to what uh, the populace is where the populace is sort of at with regards to their attitudes uh, on on environmentalism. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, so what I want to be talking about uh, is I want to get Tim Nash to be back on the show in 10 years. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the growing platform economy because this is something I've become completely obsessed with, uh, which I, I, I plan to be writing something about soon. Um, but this a brief explanation. The platform economy is something like when you see uh, Netflix or, or, bike, or auto, bike sharing or music streaming or anything like that, uh, where, where basically you, what you're signing on to isn't necessarily the, the the product, but actually it's access over ownership is really the key here. Uh, and what's interesting right now is at a point with the platform economy that you're seeing uh, you're seeing it very high highly effectively overtaking the media. Uh, anyone who thinks that music streaming isn't going to take over the music industry in the next five ten years is is out to lunch. Uh, anyone who doesn't think Netflix is not is is basically the new model for how to move forward is also out to lunch. Um, and all these different ways. And but what's interesting is that's so, so we've seen that transition happening in the media. But the really really exciting and interesting chance opportunities are within the physical world. Uh, and and people, what's interesting is you're getting this sort of platform economy is then mixed with sort of the sharing economy to some extent, uh, in which being conflated in ways that don't make a lot of sense. Uh, but when you talk th- when you talk about the idea of you know if you have a tool membership that just gets you all the tools you need, um, or or now or now congratulations to the tool library with the with the with, with their newly launched or very shortly launched actually next Wednesday is a launch party uh, for the stuff and the thing the library of things, uh, which in which they're going to have a popcorn machine by the way I, I was told this a couple days ago and I was like I was so excited because um, popcorn machines are incredibly expensive to rent but if you can just borrow it for a day you get a popcorn machine and who doesn't want a popcorn machine one of my favorite examples is a music lending library ooh nice musical instrument lending library right yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and we're seeing libraries across across the world come to find these new and fascinating ways. Uh, I didn't even know that the, uh, the library in the West End was running a toy library for quite some time. Uh, and, and we're seeing this sort of – I think this idea of this – people have sort of ex- have separated the two. I think people have understood the platform economy existing in the for-profit idea and then, uh, then the idea that the platform economy cannot exist in the, st- in the things world without it being, fo- without it being sort of, uh, you know – Basically, like something like the tool library, which is very hyper local and stuff like that. And I think we're going to see this expanding uh, of this conversation, especially when you when you go to bike sharing and auto sharing and stuff like that. Uh, and how far could it go? Is, the, is my other question. Uh, I, I'm going to go out on a limb right now and say that the first, the, it was, you see the Fairphone. We talked about this a while ago, um, but or Fairphone 2.0. But I, I, I will go on a limb and say that the first uh, phone company to figure out that if they just do a platform economy of a phone system where you can just Get a phone and get it consistently updated with the up, one update you need. Uh, will will take over the phone industry if they do it right. Uh, I don't know who it's going to be, uh, but someone's going to figure that out and they're going to win. Um, but it can go so many other ways. Uh, I could go on for this forever. Uh, but since we have an economist in the room and we have seven minutes still on the show, Tim, <laughs> what do you think about that? Uh, a couple things. So in on the phone race, uh, Apple is very close to doing what you talked about. I, see, uh, it makes so much sense for them to do so it. It makes sense. so much sense for them to do it. They've they're, got they're um, worse culprits of making us get new phones. Well, right now, quote unquote, and, making us. So well, so uh, under Steve Jobs, I would fully agree with you. Under Tim Cook, we're seeing a different story. They've just uh, launched their new robot. I believe it's called Liam. And what he's going to be do uh, be able to do is disassemble an iPhone in eleven seconds. <laughs> 
So if you think about all the valuable metals and minerals you have in your phone, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've got a couple old phones kicking around sort of drawers and cupboards in in my house because I buy it and it breaks or it becomes obsolete in some way. And I have to go out and buy a new one and the old one just kicks around in my cupboard. And that gold and that platinum are just sort of sitting there. Uh, so now all of a sudden, uh, for the first time in the U.S., it's not in Canada yet, but uh, Apple is rolling it out where you will be leasing your phone mm. rather than buying it, which means you can get your new upgrade every time. It would be great if it was modular. Mm-hmm. Right, that would still that's something they could still do. It's not perfect. Yeah, I would honestly just take an upgraded speed and then keep keep it going. My and phone just now. yeah, and then um, but the whole idea is that this this notion of extended producer responsibility. Right now, we buy a product, we are responsible for its disposal, which means that often it is not disposed of properly. As soon as the company retains ownership of said product, now all of a sudden it's in their vested interest to design it in such a way that it is easily recycled and turned into uh, the next generation of phones. So there's still some energy use there. It's still not, I'm not going to say it's perfect. And obviously, you know, reduce and reuse before we recycle. But mm-hmm. uh, specifically on that phone issue, yeah. I would totally agree. And uh, and we're seeing it, I'm seeing it, companies all over the place are moving towards this leasing model uh, rather than this purchase model. It's such a great opportunity. Emma. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I just, I love what you've both said in terms of how these concepts around a platform economy are about getting access to things. And then this, and thanks for highlighting that uh, example, Tim. That's really encouraging. But how these all interlay so nicely with the concept of circular economies, where, you know, you don't, where you're really looking at the footprint of things um, and ultimately getting that footprint down to zero. But just this notion that we can, through a platform, access things that we don't actually have to have personal ownership um, over them and that uh, the value then gets extended many, many times over. There's a multiplier effect, but also then a shifting responsibility around waste and the whole point of circular economies being that ultimately there is no waste. We're not mm. mass producing things um, that will, as soon as their their short lifespan is over, create waste, that we're producing things that continue on in their usefulness. And that's and that's the opportunity we're seeing, yeah. right? And, it was, and you've seen it in the past, too, even 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 20 years ago almost with Interface Carpets and Ray Anderson, the sort of famous sustainability f- focus on that. He tried to do this with carpets. Like, what, 15, yeah. 20 years ago, he tried to create basically a rent-a-carpet, which then he'd get back so he could recycle it and, and sell new carpets. Uh, and it's 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 so it's not like this is a super new technology. It's no. more just that people are finally sort of you now have other things to point to. You can be like, right. look, it's like the Netflix for carpets, and everyone's like, oh, now I sort of understand this idea. <laughs> Maybe we can actually talk about it when you're yeah. saying what well, I was saying. Like I want it's a we're sort of becoming more and more accepting of this idea of access over ownership, which has such a yeah as I mentioned, a, such an opportunity for this sort of circular economy. And I saw, as I was doing my research, I uh, came across the latest sustainability report for waste management, which is like if you ever see, probably see their trucks around, that big sort of green gold WM symbol everywhere. And traditionally, their business model was collecting garbage, taking it to the dump, and that was it. And that's how they made their money. And their latest sustainability report is all about closing the loop in the circular economy. And they see themselves sort of playing that role. And I'm trying to use sort of the nature analogy and taking the waste and turning it into food. I think it's like mushrooms and like the, those sort of those uh, uh, micro sort of biomes that, that take the waste and turn it into something useful. Uh, but that's the role that they are playing. And they see this as a huge business opportunity. So for me, it's all, you know, and the way I see the world is all 
always, you know, how do we solve these environmental problems? How do we make money while we're doing it? And one of the best ways is to take something that is waste, that the value is either zero or oftentimes it's negative, where people are actually paying to get rid of something and turning that into something that is usable. Uh, really excited to see uh, Zoo Share break ground at the Toronto Zoo this yep. week. They're going to be taking, we call them uh, Zoo Poo. <laughs> They're taking uh, waste from the animals at the Toronto Zoo and, and turning that into a renewable electricity and fertilizer that can be sold. Amazing. Uh, we have one minute. Sabina. And one last thing that I wanted to say, I think to go forward with this like waste recycling, we have to first think about when we first design our products to be easily disassembled so that we can reuse that product. I think it starts with product conception and then to the end, seeing how the waste of that product will be then made into a new product. Amazing. And with that perfectly timed ending, uh, thanks so much for everyone. This has been the 500th episode of The Green Majority. So some Earth Day thoughts for our faux bonus show this week on The Green Majority. Uh, as you may have heard earlier in the podcast, I've been uh, pretty unwell um, on the mend. Uh, hopefully everything will be just fine, but I've been feeling pretty rough, so I do apologize. That my uh, my voice is a bit lackluster, and I've been pretty, pretty tired. But I have some thoughts anyway for you. Um, and I want to play a little bit off. I was listening to, uh, to the show just as I was about to do this, um, and... Uh, I want to play a little bit off some of the thoughts in the sense, uh, particularly something that, you know, Brenna and, and a few of the others were saying about, you know, the let this be the last Earth Day is, I guess, you know, and, and I'm I'm sort of the weird uh, geek, I guess, in a way of the show um, in that I'm, you know, I spend a lot of time. We don't talk about it much in the show unless you listen long enough that you know how many times I've played or mentioned Carl Sagan. Uh, but I'm a huge space geek and I'm really into like astrophysics and 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 astronomy and cool things like that and particle physics and it no obviously not as a trained professional but just as an as an enthusiast and one of the things that i like you know think about stuff like that is listen to uh to lectures by people like lawrence krauss and uh just talk about you know all the all the mystery and and cool things we can discover out in the universe and you know we can discover a lot of that from here through cool things like uh space telescopes and and the the kepler 2 which was recently saved um but you know i really you know call me a dreamer but i really see humanity's future being among the stars not just looking up at them and i guess that's the reason i get so anxious uh sometimes when we're talking about all these earthly problems is because you know, I just see this brief moment where I feel like, you know, I'm deathly afraid that we're going to screw it up and, uh, and end humanity here on earth, not out of any sense of personal fear for my own well-being. I'm sure that even if we really do manage to screw this place up, that I'll probably have a decent life. Um, because of, you know, I happen to have been born white and in Canada, so things can't really be that bad for me, not to mention male. Um, but, you know, I just, I see this sort of great future stretching out ahead of us and I'm really excited by it. I'm really excited that descendants of ours will get to have that life. And, uh, and I think that's sort of my looking up at the stars a little bit. And it's not always with anxiety. Usually it's with a great sense of wonder. Um, it's really exciting, this place that we live. 
I just want to keep it around a little longer. So uh, we'll keep it brief. We'll stop it there. You're, you'll hear more enough of me on the next 500 episodes. So we'll, we'll just end it there. But that, that's what I was thinking about this Earth Day. And uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all real soon. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on the mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known.